Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, Mark, thank you for reading that for us. Good evening. Uh, Do keep Psalm 23 open in front of you. Uh, If you've got a Bible there, um, we'll be looking at that together. And... um, let me, uh, let, my, let me add my welcome to Chris's. My name's Andy. If we haven't met before, I'd love to meet you after the service, uh, especially if you're a student. It might be that you're um, here um, from another country studying in Sheffield. I know lots of um, students have just arrived in Sheffield from overseas this month. Um, I, I particularly work with university students here, so I'd, I'd particularly love to meet you. Um, Great, well, uh, I'm going to pray for God's help as we come to look at this great passage together and then we'll dive in. So let's pray, shall we? Lord God, the first psalm in this great book of psalms says, blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day day. And night. Our Lord God, we pray that as we come to Psalm 23 together this evening, that you might give us that delight in your word, that we would dwell on it and love it. Help me to speak it clearly this evening, help us to understand it. And we pray that you would move our hearts and change our lives by it, that we might leave singing these great words together with our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his name. Amen. Well, um, uh, something awesome can easily become very ordinary. The awesome can easily become ordinary. Uh, On the 20th of July, 1969, at 8.18pm, the first human beings walked on the surface of the moon. And when you stop to think about that feat just for a moment, it is an awesome thing that members of our species left this planet and walked on the surface of the moon, isn't it? Billions of people from around the world were glued to their TV set as Neil Armstrong said those iconic words, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And and the sort of... um, the technology, the engineering, the science and the bravery involved in that feat was an awesome thing and yet it's something that's become an ordinary thing 
really, hasn't it? I remember growing up and seeing those pictures of Earth from space on the front of school textbooks and taking it for granted that people had left this planet. Um, You know, we joke, we can put a man on the moon, but we can't even make decent coffee in churches. What's our problem? It's become an ordinary thing. Or take another example, um, take penicillin. A hundred years ago, thousands of people around the world died from illnesses that today... You just go to your GP, take a tablet, and they go away, and you're fine. It's an awesome thing to think, at least for the moment anyway, while, we, while they still work, that we have these incredible antibiotics, and yet we don't think about them at all, do we? We just throw them back with a glass of water and get better. It's an awesome thing that's become ordinary. Now, um, now I say this because, um, well, at one level, we're looking at Psalm 23, aren't we? We're beginning um, a summer series looking at the Psalms, and we're looking at perhaps the most famous passage in the whole Bible, apart from maybe John 3.16 or something like that. And they're awesome words that have maybe become ordinary to us, if we know them off by heart. Um, But more than that, I think the Christian life is something awesome that often becomes ordinary. You know, I think of my excitement when I first became a Christian, 16 years old, I read Mark's gospel for the first time on a summer's camp, and I was blown away. The the joy of knowing that my sins were forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the meaning and purpose and freedom that entered my life, knowing a personal relationship with the God who'd made me. I, I came home from that camp overjoyed to tell my friends and family and really anyone I could, I've become a Christian. It's an awesome thing. And yet if you're anything like me, over the years, the Christian life becomes something Well, something ordinary, doesn't it? Something every day, something well-worn. Often we don't think about how awesome it is to be a Christian. Um, We just think about the daily tasks of living life or um, uh, we think about the things that need doing at church or something like that. An awesome thing. And yet often it's become ordinary for us. And Psalm 23 is an invitation to stand back and to look again at what it means to be a Christian and to see that it is an awesome thing. And if you're here this evening and you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, my prayer is that as we come to these words, as we, um, as we come to, um, to read and to sing them together, that you will be reminded of what a glorious and beautiful thing it is to know God in Christ. And it might be that you're here this evening and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're, just, um, you're here with a friend or something and you're just looking into things. Well, as Chris said, we love to have new people amongst us and I hope that um, you'll keep digging and looking at the evidence. But it may just be that you're asking that question, um, what difference does it make? You know, if I became a Christian, what difference would it make? Um, what difference would it make if things went well? What difference would it make if things went badly in life? And here in Psalm 23, we get a picture, if you like, of the Christian life from the inside. And so I hope that it'll be a great help to you to see what an awesome thing it is to know God in Christ. Now, just before we dive in, um, a word on on how the Psalms work. Um, They're wonderfully familiar words, um, but quite often, I think, when we read Psalms, we take them almost like they're sort of random religious poems. You know, we look for the verses that sort of chime with my life, and maybe we gloss over the ones where we think, oh, that doesn't really sound very much like my life. 
And um, I, I think that's because we, we often miss how the Psalms work. Um, the majority of the Psalms were written and compiled by God's great Old Testament king, King David. Um, look at just before um, verse one there, the, um, the heading over our psalm, a psalm of David. Uh, David was God's great king in the Old Testament. And in this psalm, he describes his experience, his relationship with God as God's king. But of course, he wrote it so that the people of God, as they gathered together at the temple, could sing it with them. Psalm 23 is an invitation to the people of God to experience this relationship for themselves. And of course, the New Testament quotes the Psalms more than any other book in the Bible because it says that they point us to Jesus Christ, God's great king, great David's greater son. Psalm 23, as all of the Psalms, gives us a picture of Jesus Christ and his relationship with his father within the bonds of the Trinity and in salvation And of course, when we trust in Christ, when we become a Christian, we're invited to be in Christ. We're invited to experience the relationship that Christ experiences. And so even when we get to the verses of Psalm 23 where we think, oh, that doesn't feel much like my life at the moment, well, we're invited to know these truths because we are in Christ. We sing with the King We experience the blessings of his relationship with God. We experience the joys of it. It's an invitation to us to sing with the king. And so four things from Psalm 23 that happen when we sing with the king. Firstly, when we sing with the king, we know God personally. Have a look down at verse one with me. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. It was very common in the ancient world when David was writing to refer to your God as a shepherd. You you can jump on a train down to the British Museum and you can see the inscriptions that say, um, the shepherd Shamash guide his people or Marduk has provided me with pasture. And when you sort of think about it, it's a very intuitive image for God, isn't it? A shepherd. And the shepherd is the guide, the protector, the thinker, the disciplinarian, the physician, the one who cares for all of the sheep's needs. And so it was a common image to describe your God as a shepherd. And verse one, well, verse one is a confession of faith. The Lord, not some other not Shamash, not Marduk, not um, something of my own creation, not my own achievements, but the Lord is the one I look to, my shepherd. And um, if you know the Old Testament, you'll know that when you see Lord in capitals, it's not actually a title that's being referred to, but a personal name. Uh, Back in Exodus, God said to Moses he was going to keep his promises. He was going to rescue his people from Egypt. And Moses said, um, well, when I go to the people, who shall I tell them has sent me? And God said, "Um, well, uh, I am who I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. The name of God, not just a title, but a personal name. And we could, um, we could dwell all night on the depth of meaning in that name, but I just want to think for a moment as we hit the first word of the first verse, 
that this is a promise to know God personally by name. Um, At our last church, there was a wonderful retired brigadier And some of you might know him. He's a great, a fine Christian man. He was a great friend to many of us. But the man is army through and through. And so when he spoke to uh, any of the staff at the church, he would really refer to us by rank rather than by our name. So it would be morning rector, evening curate. Very different, isn't it, the relationship you have with someone who refers to you by rank than someone who calls you Andy. Very different um, to receive an email saying, Dear Sir, to one saying, Dear Andy. And that's what we have here. Not a God who we know by title, but a God who we know by name, says David. The great I am is my shepherd. The God that I know by name. And of course, in the New Testament, it's revealed to us that the great I am is more like a divine family than a lonely individual or an impersonal force. The great I am is the one who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when we come to Jesus, when we trust him as our king, when we sing with the king, he invites us into that relationship so that we can call God Father. We can call Jesus brother and friend. Uh, You might know in John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. But listen to how he unpacked that idea. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. Do you see, when we come to Jesus and trust him, when we sing with the king, we get to call God father. In Islam, there are 99 names for God, but not one of them is father. Uh, Christianity, it's not a religion or set of rituals primarily. It's not that we follow a set of impersonal spiritual principles or a, or a sort of distant watchmaker God who made everything and then left it to us, left, um, left us to it. No, we, we get to know God by name. We get to know him in person. We get to say, my father in heaven is my shepherd. Jesus is my good shepherd when we sing with the king, we're not just invited into a religion or a philosophy or a set of ideas. We get to know God personally. But then secondly, we see in this psalm that when we sing with the king, we know God's provision. Have a look down at verse one with me again. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Here is a picture of a shepherd diligently caring for the sheep, providing for everything they need. There's the the good food of green pastures. There's a suitable place to drink. And the metaphor sort of overflows, doesn't it, into spiritual provision. He restores my soul. Here is a shepherd who gives us all that we need physically, but also gives us our greatest and deepest needs. That meaning, that fulfillment, that answer to my questions of guilt and inner anguish. He restores my soul. Now, I don't know about you, I know almost nothing about agriculture, but the, um, the books tell me that sheep will not lie down when they're hungry. Sheep stand up to eat. And they will not lie down when they're harried or in danger because they need to be ready to run. Um, uh, They need quiet waters in order to drink. If it's choppy, it's difficult for them. And so here is a picture of um, fat, contented, and favoured sheep 
with a diligent shepherd who provides for them. And King David looks back on his life and he says, God has provided for me. God has been this kind of shepherd. Uh, We see here the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Uh, We live in an anxious age, don't we? Um, A a report by the University of Cambridge from last year notes that more than 8 million people in the UK suffer from some kind of anxiety-related disorder. Uh, When you think about it, there is much to be anxious about in this life, is there not? There are the big things, global terror, Brexit, this government, the next government, but there are the personal things too that weigh much more heavily. My degree, my job, my pension... Will I ever make friends, get married, have children? What can I do for that relative who's getting older, who's getting sick? What can I do for that teenager who's going off the rails? There's much to feel anxious about in this life. It might be that you're here this evening and anxiety is just just gnawing at your heart. And if we're on our own in this life, well, we have every reason to be anxious, don't we? Because we have to sort ourselves out. But here in Psalm 23, David points us to a God who is our shepherd. Psalm 23 is here to remind us that God has bound himself to us in love. He has committed himself to provide for us. And of course, we see the depth of that love and provision in the life and death of Jesus Christ. A father who loves us so much, he was willing to give up his son. A son who loves us so much, he was willing to step into human history to suffer and die for you and to send you his spirit. Listen to Paul in Romans 8 verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. It's not a promise that God will give us everything that we crave. No, Jesus was quite clear that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We need only look at Jesus' example. He had no home, no stable career, no pension. He never got married, never had children, and yet was the most contented man who's ever lived because he trusted himself to his heavenly father. It was Jesus who reminded us that God knows every hair on your head and not a hair falls without him knowing about it. He clothes the lilies of the field. He feeds the birds of the air. Will he not look after you also who are worth much more, Jesus said. Uh, No, this God, the God of Psalm 23, he's not the genie in the lamp who'll give give you whatever you want, but he is a loving father who'll give you what you need. A diligent shepherd who provides for his people. If you're a Christian here today, uh, maybe, um, maybe when our anxiety wells up within us, what we need to do is read through Psalm 23 again and remember God's loving care to us every day up until today. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. When we know Jesus, when we sing with the King, we know God's provision Thirdly, when we sing with the king, we know God's protection. Verse four. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Uh, The Middle East is full of these sort of narrow ravines that are cut by flash floods. 
Uh, they're dark and threatening places. And we can picture the, um, uh, the, the sheep being led there by the shepherd into this threatening and frightening environment, shadows in clothes. And sheep, well, they don't understand why they're being led through this dangerous and frightening valley. They just know that they're being led there. And David, King David, he says, this is my experience to be led through the dark valley. Uh, There's a little bit of of debate about whether it should be translated darkest valley or valley of the shadow of death. Um, Both pictures really mean the same thing, don't they? The threat of darkness and of death. And here you have David addressing God. Did you notice that? Verse four, verses one to three, the king has spoken to us, the people, but in verse four, he turns his eyes to God and he says, I'll fear no evil, not because you take me out of the situation, but because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's a familiar picture, isn't it, if you know the Psalms? But um, the staff is the thing the shepherd uses to gently guide the sheep on their way. Uh, The rod, well, it's basically like a baseball bat that the shepherd uses to beat the living daylights out of anything that attacks the sheep. And, um, And yes, probably keep the odd sheep in line as well. But it's a tough picture, this one. You know, um, I think we need to dwell on it for a moment because um, aren't we used to the sort of the children's Bible picture of shepherds? You know, he's a sort of cheerful guy with a big beard and a tea towel on his head and he's got some happy, fluffy sheep at his feet. But shepherds are tough guys in the Bible. You know, when David um, wants to fight Goliath and everyone says he's too small, what does he say? He basically says, guys, don't worry about it. I'm a shepherd I've killed wild animals with my bare hands when they've attacked the sheep, says David. And that's the picture here. A tough God who fights for his people. A powerful God who will protect his people. A God with a rod and a staff. And you know what, King David, he wouldn't write this glibly. You say to me, Andy, you don't know the darkness of the valley that I'm in. Well, David, he was a man who knew what it was to be on the run for his life from a dangerous, um, a dangerous king, King Saul. He was a man who knew what it was to be crushed by his own guilt, who knew what it was to be sick, who knew what it was to lose a child and to have another turn against him and rebel against him. He was a man who suffered in the dark valleys of this life. And he says, I fear no evil, for you are with me. And of course, he points us to his greater son, doesn't he, the Lord Jesus. And who could have walked through a darker valley than the Lord Jesus Christ? For when he walked through the valley of the shadow of death, when he, when he hung on a cross for three hours and darkness covered the land, it wasn't the inevitable consequence of his own sins. He died as an innocent man in our place. You might know that darkness in the Bible represents the very great judgment of God, his right anger against the way that we've treated him. And Jesus bore that not for himself, but for the sins of the world. None have been through a darker valley. None have walked through the valley of the shadow of this death that was our death and the death of every sinner who trusts in him. And yet what did Jesus say? Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And he was right to do that, wasn't he? Because three days later, God raised Jesus from the grave to new life. He vindicated him so that he might offer new life to anyone who trusts in Jesus as their king. And as Christians, I don't know if you know this, but we are called to walk the path of the cross. Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Uh, Peter makes very clear in his first letter that the pattern of the Christian life is the pattern of suffering followed by glory. The cross before the crown. As for Jesus, so for those who trust him and sing with him. It might be that you're here this evening and you say to me, Andy, you don't know the darkness of the valley that I'm called to walk through. Becoming a Christian seems to have made things harder for me and not better. I know what it is to feel something of the cross. And yet we see here a God who is with us, a God who is with Christ and is with us. It might be that the the right paths that he leads us down are very dark and the burden is very heavy, but he is with us. And when we see a saviour who was crucified for us, and raised, we know that God will bring us to eternal life. That even if um, there's no end to the hardships that we face as we follow him through the dark valleys of this world, yet when we face the valley of the shadow of death itself, we can do it with confidence. Jesus was raised. If you're a Christian, you will be raised to be with him forever. He is with you now and will be with you then. I was um, praying with a a sister in Christ um, not long ago, and um, she's someone who has suffered with with terrible illness, really, for the last 20 years. And we prayed earnestly for God to heal her. We believe in a God who heals, but she said something very wise when we met to pray. She said, I know that God will answer the prayer in the way that's best for me, according to his will. He might not heal me, but I know that he loves me. And that is very wise. We look to Jesus and we know that by his spirit he is with us, even in the valley of the shadow of death. When we sing with the king, we know God's protection. But then finally, when we sing with the king, we know God's promised victory. We know God's promised victory. Verse five. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I don't know if you've been watching Wimbledon the last fortnight. Uh, we've, uh, yeah, I can see one or two nodding already. We've been watching it. Um, uh, if you've been saving the final and you're going to watch it later, maybe you're at that prayer meeting this afternoon and I, I, um, I salute your godliness for that. I won't spoil it for you. Um, who won the final, um, tempting as it is. But, um, but think of those athletes just for a moment who get themselves ready for Wimbledon through gruelling practice and um, physical work. And so many of them go into the tournament carrying injuries, as we've seen over the last two weeks, and they push themselves to the limits. Why? Well, there's a trophy to be had, isn't there? 
and there's glory at the end. Now, with Wimbledon, it's only for um, a few people, um, a, a singles man, a singles woman, and some, um, some doubles winners as well. But here we have a picture of victory, of glory, to help us endure. Uh, it's the victory feast of the king. Notice verse five, the table is spread in the presence of enemies. Here is a feast in which um, the enemies of the king can only look on with despair. And it's a feast where his head is anointed with oil. Uh, you might know that the, um, the word Christ or Messiah in the Bible, it literally means anointed one. Because when the crown was put on the head of God's king in the Old Testament, they were covered in oil at the same time. They were anointed. It was a sign that God was with them, that they were indeed God's king. And here we have a picture of a king being enthroned, being anointed. Uh, We leave behind the picture of the shepherd and the sheep just for a moment. Having been led through this dark valley, here we see a king sat at his table in victory and declared to all the world, this is my king. Uh, 2 Samuel 2, you can read about King David being anointed in the face of his enemies. Romans chapter one, Paul speaks of the Lord Jesus like this. He was declared to be son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. When God raised Jesus, he declared this, this is my king, the victorious one. And here's the, um, the remarkable thing. Here's where we fit in verse five. We're invited to sit at the victory feast with the king. You read the closing chapters of Revelation, read um, chapters 19 to 21, and you see a king sits to eat in victory at the end of chapter 19. And then this victory feast, well, it turns into the wedding supper of the lamb, where God's people and God rejoice together, where he'll wipe every tear from their eye. There'll be no more suffering or pain or mourning anymore. For God will wipe away every tear from their eye. He will be their God and they will be his people. Uh, God has promised victory to his king. David says, you prepare a table before me, even in the presence of my enemies. And we're invited. If you come to Jesus and say, "I I want you to be my king over my life. I want you to be the one who rescues me from your right judgment. Well, we get to sing in the choir and sit at the feast. And so when things are hard, and when we doubt the provision, and when we fear the, the, the feeling of the dark valley and worry about the protection, well, we can look ahead and see a king who promises victory, a father who prepares a table for his son and welcomes us to join him. And we can join the Lord Jesus in singing verse six together. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. What a picture of the present. It's not enemies, it's not hardships or worries or anxieties that follow me, but the goodness and love of our God. And in the future, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Look, if you're here today and you're... um, 
you're just looking into the Christian faith. Um, there's lots of evidence to examine, and I'd encourage you to do that. I'd love to chat to you about the reasons that I'm convinced that Jesus really did rise from the dead in history. But I'd invite you also to think about the difference that knowing Jesus makes in daily life. That we know a God personally who, who provides, who protects, who promises us a victory that punches through death and through every worry that we have. It is an awesome and a beautiful thing to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if you would come to know him even today. And it may be that um, as you sit here as a Christian, if you're honest, like me, very often your eyes are just down on the things you have to get done today, the to-do list, the exams, the coursework, the, um, the deadlines, the mortgage, all of the other details of life, or perhaps it's the things you have to do at church, you know, the, the Bible studies to lead, or the things you have to get to and get, you know, get home, feed the kids and get out again. And to be honest, it becomes very ordinary. Well, Psalm 23 invites us to step back to see again the awesome difference that it makes to know Jesus as our king, to be able to say, the Lord, my father, Jesus, my brother, is my shepherd. It is an awesome thing, brothers and sisters, to be a Christian. Now I'm going to pray for us before we turn to sing this wonderful psalm together. So let's pray. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Our Lord God, would you move our hearts with these truths this week. Help us as we go out from here to Monday morning to remember what an awesome thing it is to know you, our God, as shepherd. To know you personally, to be provided for, protected, and to know the promise of your victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing this great psalm with the King this evening. Uh, Matt's going to lead us, but by his spirit, he is here with us. And so let us join together in singing the words of Psalm 23. Please stand and we'll sing the Lord is my shepherd.